0: If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Psalm 139. We'll be in Psalm 139 this evening. As some of you may know, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Indianapolis um, and it was very common for me to be asked the question, what are you or where are you from? It was always awkward kind of questions trying to get at what is your ethnic background. That's what they were trying to ask. And while it's very normal in Miami, where we're multicultural, there's people from everywhere, that's a normal question to ask in the Midwest, it's just not something that you ask. Um, But, for your information, my dad is Anglo, my uh, mom was born in South Korea. My mom was born in South Korea, um, she was quickly given up for adoption, and her adopted father was a chaplain in the army during the Korean War, and what he would do is he would bring plane loads of orphans from South Korea over the United States. And he was one of the, uh, she, I'm sorry, my mother, was one that he brought over on the plane and actually ended up adopting her. She was in a good home. Parents loved her, she had five siblings. But growing up, it was very apparent to her that she did not fit in. My mother is pretty dark-complected, she has dark hair, um, and her brothers and sisters are all blonde with blue eyes, as as were her um, adopted parents. So she always had this question, where, where did I come from? Who do I belong to? Her parents loved her, her family loved her. She wasn't, um, she wasn't hurting in that way, but she still had questions where she came from. And it's recently, she got on Ancestry.org and she was able to um, submit her DNA to this database and it, you put your DNA in a database and um, anybody else that's done the same thing, it connects you if you find any blood relatives and you can get contact information from them and um, try to get in contact with them. She did that. And she was actually able to find quite a few hits. She found second cousins, then she found first cousins, then she found a half-sibling that's actually living in California. And finally, it seems that she's actually found who her biological both father and mother are. While her biological father has since passed and who she believes is her biological mother, um, for various reasons, uh, is not comfortable taking the DNA test, It's given my mother a lot of information as far as where she came from, culturally, who she is. That's something that all of us look for. Who am I? What tribe do I belong to? What is my identity? We do this with where we came from. We do this with sports teams. Being in Miami, we have Dolphins fans. If you're a Dolphins fan, then that means you love Dolphins. It tells you what colors you wear. It tells you what time you need to turn the TV on. It tells you what teams you're not supposed to like. We do the same thing with music. We find the music that we like and the type of people that we want to identify with. These are my people. This is the music that I listen to. This is who I am. Finding our identity is important to us. What I want us to see here tonight in Psalm 139 is truths about God, and those truths about God tell us who we are. There's implications that come from that. So let's open up to Psalm 139. And we're going to be looking at, in the first half of Psalm 139, three truths about God, three life-altering truths about God. The first one that we are going to look at is God's knowledge of you. If you'll please read with me, Psalm 139, we'll start in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways even before a word is on my tongue behold o lord you know it altogether. you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful me wonderful for me it is high i cannot attain it these verses speak of god's knowledge of you. He knows you. These verses tell us that he knows your thoughts. He knows your words before you even speak them. There's a study recently done by Cornell University. They're trying to ascertain the number of decisions that an adult makes on a daily basis. During their study they found that the average adult makes 200, approximately 225 decisions a day just about their food. Just about their food. I found that hard to believe, honestly, reading that study at the beginning, but the more you think about it, you have to decide what you're going to eat, where you're going to eat, how many bites you're going to take before you take the drink, are you going to swallow before you take the drink, or are you going to take a drink with food in your mouth, who are you going to eat with, are you kind of going to pick around on the plate, or are you going to finish one section before you move on to the other. There's a lot of decisions that we make just on our food. God is aware of all of our thoughts, not just about our food, not just about those random things that seemingly don't matter. The fact that God knows your thoughts means he also knows your desires. He knows your dreams. He knows your fears. He knows what you're afraid of. He knows what you wish you had. He knows why when you feel lonely. He knows everything about you. This shows God's care for you. He's intimately involved and knowing of everything about you. One of the implications of this is it gives us much confidence in prayer. When we pray, I don't know if you've ever felt like this, I have. I pray and I feel like I want to communicate this to God, but I feel like I don't have the words to say. God knows my thoughts before I say them. God understands my prayers. God understands me better than I do. Hebrews tells us that we have a sympathetic high priest that knows us, that has experienced life as we have experienced it. He's been cold. He's been hungry. Jesus, our Savior. He's been ostracized, he's felt alone, he's been rejected. And when we pray to our God, we pray to a God that understands. We pray to a God that knows us. Prayer is not a waste of time. We're not praying to someone that does not understand. They do not get lost in translation. God hears us. This can be very comforting that we have a God that knows us, that loves us, that cares about what we think. At the same time, the flip side of this is it can feel very unnerving. The God of the universe knows every thought that I have. For me personally, I don't want all of my thoughts shared. I'm a sinner, and I have thoughts that I am ashamed of at times. Maybe you feel the same way. To know that God knows everything about me, that knows every thought that I've ever had, is a scary thing. That a holy and just God knows everything that I've thought and we see David struggling with the same thing here in verse 7. If you look at verse 7 with me, Psalm 139. David is he's responding to this as he's wrestling with this fact that God knows everything about him. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? So he recognizes that God's knowledge of him is wonderful And a beautiful thing, at the same time, it's a scary thing, something that he wants to flee from, something that makes him uncomfortable, something that he is not okay with, which transitions us into our next life-altering truth about God. We've seen God's knowledge of you, and now we'll look at God's presence with you. If you'll please read along with me, starting in verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Again, in this passage, we see God's presence with you. This is one of the summits, honestly, of the Old Testament. The poetic prose that we see here in these verses is absolutely beautiful. In verse 8, we see David talking about ascending to heaven, or if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. What he's doing is he's juxtaposing these vertical extremes. If I were to go to the highest place that I could imagine, to heaven, you are there. If I were to go to the lowest place I could imagine, Sheol, you are there. Sheol is a word that we don't use very often. We find it every once in a while in the Old Testament. And what they're referring to, what the Old Testament authors are referring to when they use the word Sheol is place of the dead or afterlife, if you will. When it's referred to as a geographical location, as it is here in Psalm 139, it's speaking of some place low, some place below, some place under. So again, David is giving us these extremes of vertical, both high and low. We live, of course, on planet Earth in the Milky Way galaxy. The closest galaxy to us is the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy. If you have not heard of it, that is okay. I didn't know about it either. Being the closest galaxy to us, it is still 25,000 light years away. 25,000 light years. We throw the term light years around pretty often, especially if we watch sci-fi movies or something like that. But as a reminder of what a light year is, a light year is traveling at the speed of light 24-7, for an entire year. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That's the equivalent of going around the circumference of the earth over seven times every second. 24-7, no bathroom breaks for an entire year. That's one light year. 25,000 of those to get to the next closest galaxy in the universe. Maybe one of you guys will grow up to become the next Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk and you'll start your own SpaceX and you'll discover the speed of light and can travel that quickly. Still 25,000 years to get to the closest. Wherever we go, God is there, present with you. Wherever you can imagine that is lonely, wherever you are that is lonely, God is there with you. So I want to ask you, what is your Canis Major dwarf galaxy? What makes you feel alone? Do you feel like that today? Do you feel like you are beyond the reach of God, that he can't get to where you are, that he can't help you where you are? Have your friends and family abandoned you recently because you found Jesus? Is it singleness at 30? Does that make you feel alone, like there's nothing you can do about it? Feeling like you're always the odd man out in conversations? Maybe it's your spouse. It's just been really cold and distant recently whatever your situation is, whatever loneliness, however out of reach you feel, you are not out of reach of your God. He is not only there present with you, he's also active in your life. Take a look at verse 10 with me. David says even there, even in these extremes, even in the Canis dwarf galaxy, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me you are not alone you are never alone God is with you we move on to our third point we've seen God's knowledge of you we've seen God's presence with you and now thirdly we'll look at God's design of you please read along with me in verse 13 for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb I praise you He's made every single one of us. All matter in the universe is made up of atoms. Um, My daughter is actually studying this in science class right now, in middle school. Everything. My shirt, our car, uh, the carpet, everything is made up of atoms, including your body. The average human body is made up of 27, excuse me, seven octillion atoms. Seven octillion atoms. You may think, well, that's eight zeros behind an octillion. No, that's 27 zeros behind an octillion. Don't do it now, but when you get home, you can write down a seven and then 27 zeros behind that. That's how many atoms are in every single person's body. God has placed each and every one of those with purpose. He not only has placed them, but He maintains them. That is the level of care that He has shown for you in designing you and creating you. He's given you significance. And he has given you value. God cares for you. I'm going to put a quote up on the screen by Wayne Grudem, who's an influential theologian. He's best known for his tome, that is um, introduction to systematic theology. But he has this to say about our significance that God gives to us. Scripture is clear that our ultimate significance comes from the fact that God has created us for his glory, that he counts us as significant. God alone gives the ultimate definition of what is significant and what is not significant in the universe. And if he counts us significant, then we are. One of the things reading through this passage that was brought to mind is how we like a hot-button a hot topic in our current culture is when does life begin? Does it begin at conception? Does it begin at birth? So, again, when the fetus is viable, these verses tell us that God is intimately supervising our creation from the very beginning. Again, you formed me my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, you, your eyes saw my unformed substance. We are not a bundle of cells, we are not a fetus until we become viable and then God somehow adds a soul to us from the very beginning of life, from the very beginning of conception. God is there creating us with purpose. And for us to say otherwise is to go against what God tells us in his word. So God, you are wrong and we are right. To speak more candidly, abortion is a reality that we live with in our culture and many other countries do. And this is not right. To take the life of unborn children is not right. It is a murder. To those of you that maybe read this passage and feel like, well, I understand David could feel this way, like he was built in a special way. The Bible tells us he was handsome, he was rich, he was popular, he was king of the country. Like it's easy to feel like, yeah, God took care of me. I got a pretty good hand. But God dealt me a bum hand. I don't look the way I wish I did. I don't have the mental capacity I wish I did. I don't have the personality that I wish I did. Friends, if that's where you're sitting today, God does not deal bum hands. God does not deal bum hands. Whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever detriments that you think you have, God has made you the way he has made you with purpose and significance and value that is equal to every other human being that has ever lived. You have value and significance, again, because God has given that to you. We are not to compare ourselves to other people. We are to find our value because of how God sees us and what God says about us. Don't miss David's response in verse 14. He says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is what our response should look like. So as a review, we've looked at three life-altering truths about God and His involvement in your life. We've looked at His knowledge of you. We've looked at His presence with you, and we've also looked at His design of you. We will now move on to three, three heart-changing implications from these truths about God. The first one that we're going to look at is who God is changes what we love. You'll look at verse 17 with me. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. The truth about God, how he loves us, how he knows us, how he's present with us, and how he has designed us, it changes what we love. This reminds me of 1 John 4. We love him because he first loved us. Because of these truths about God, how can we not respond with love for God? As he has created us from the beginning, as he's forming our hearts, these hearts that he knows in the future are going to rebel against him. As he's creating our bodies, he knows that our hearts will be traitorous, that we will rebel, that we will sin, that we will be riddled with pride and selfishness, that we will be against God, our God, and yet still the amount of care and concern and intentionality he shows to us is incredible. We also see God's love for us, of course, the ultimate in his son, Jesus Christ. These hearts that he's formed, these bodies that he's formed, these human beings that he's formed and given value to that he knows are going to turn around and reject him, he sent his son to die for. Jesus Christ has come to earth to live a life that we could not live, to die in our place, and then to rise again three days later, proving his love for us, proving that he is who he says he is, proving that he keeps his promises. This is God's love for us. How can we not respond in love towards him? So the truth about God changes what we love. Not only God, but we also love others. If God has made us in His image, if God has given us value, He's also given everyone else value. So it changes how we treat other people, how we interact with our neighbors, how we interact with those that wrong us. We pray for our enemies. We forgive those that trespass against us. We offer that love that we have been offered as well. So it changes what we love. It also changes what we hate. Let's look at verse 19. O oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent, your enemies take your name in vain. Do not I hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do not I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This passage can be a little disorienting. We've just talked about loving other people, We've talked about we're supposed to love our enemies. And then we read this passage that says, I hate my enemies. I loathe those who rise us up against you. So is this contradictory to what David was just saying? How do we square the truths in 17 and 18 with what we see in 19 through 22? What I want you to see here as we look through these verses is what David is citing. He says, the wicked, slay the wicked, men of blood, those that speak against you with malicious intent, those that take your name in vain, those who hate you, those who rise up against you. To love God, to love the things of God is to hate the things that are anti-God, to hate the things that are against God. We cannot have both of those. James speaks of this. James says, the enmity with the world, enmity with God is friendship with the world, excuse me, you can't serve both. Jesus speaks of this clearly as well. We can't serve two masters. James also says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. To love God is to hate the things that are against God. That means the behaviors that we see, we hate sin. As God hates sin, we hate sin. This is really easy to do when the sin is in other people. When we see people around us doing things that are against the law of God, we can self-righteously and with pride look at them and say, how can you do that? That's against God. God's not about that, and neither am I. But it gets really difficult when we start looking at the sin in our lives. Do we hate the sin in our lives? Do we turn our eyes to our hearts, and when we see pride and we see selfishness and we see anger and we see jealousy, do we hate that sin as much as we, as we hate the sin that we see in other people? Or do we turn a blind eye to it? Are we content with it? Are we okay with our sin? Are we okay with where we are at? Are we content with immaturity? Are we content with the behavior unbecoming becoming a Christian? If we are, we don't hate what God hates. The affections of our hearts have not been changed by who He is. Friends, in all humility, we have to choose a side. Are we going to love God and hate our sin? Are we going to love our sin? That is as simple as it is. So these truths about God, they change what we love, they change what we hate, and finally, they change what we want. Verses 23 and 24, if you'll read along with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. We see in these verses a stark contrast, honestly, from verse 7. If you remember verse 7, when David is wrestling with this truth that God knows everything about him, he feels this urge to flee, to run away, to get away. But in verse 23, we see him actually inviting God in. God, know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. He wants to expose his entire heart. He wants more of this. He realizes and recognizes that god knows him and cares for him that's what these truths that david is writing about has shown to him and because he's seen that love of god for him he wants more of that he wants more of god's truth in his life he doesn't want to run away from that he invites that in he wants to be convicted of his sin he wants to be changed by god he desires for that and yearns for it god has given us two major tools for us to find God's will for our lives and to allow God to search and know us, for us to be convicted of sin, for us to be changed. The first is simply God's word. It's the word of God. We'll oftentimes speak and say that we want to know the will of God. We're looking for the will of God in our lives. How can we find it? How can we find this special will of God? Friends, the will of God is revealed to you in his word. It's right in front of us, every day available to us all compiled, ready to go. God wants to speak to us through his word, and he does speak to us through his word. We just have to open it. A popular biblical author, writing of the Bible, writes about the Bible, he's a Christian author, has many resources that are very helpful, but he had this to say, you cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. You read that again. You cannot be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. If you want to know God, if you want to know the God of the universe, if you want to know the God that has saved you, you cannot know him unless you read his word. He's speaking to you through it. There's no other way to know him. The second tool that God gives us is the church. It is our brothers and sisters in Christ. We we have been designed to live in community. We've been designed to encourage one, one another, to challenge one another, to speak the word into each other's lives. Just as you want to be changed by the word, your brothers and sisters also want the same. And as we come together, there's a synergy that is created as we're sharing the word with each other. So do not walk out on that. Do not skip out on that. That's one of the things I love about Grace Church, honestly. We are together constantly. People are together constantly. And I love that. Are we capitalizing on those times together? Are we getting together only to play sports? Are we getting together and only staying surface level? Or are we asking each other hard questions? Are we asking how we're doing spiritually? Are we asking where our prayer life is at? Are we asking how our temptations have been? We want to invite that from other people and we also want to be that Christian influence, that spiritual influence in the lives of those that we are around. So leverage Those two things, the word of God and God's people. So again, as a review, the three truths of God that we've looked at are his knowledge of you, his presence with you, and then his design for you. And those truths, as we mull over them, as we chew on them, as we apply them, they will change our hearts in three ways. They'll change what we love, change what we hate, and also change what we want. So in conclusion, as I stated at the beginning, tonight I wanted us to see who God is and how who God is should change who we are. We do have a choice, though. We can choose spiritual anorexia if we would would like, but that is not what God would have for you. That is not what I would have for you. Invite the word of God and his people into your life. For the non-Christian in the room, if you're here, thank you first for being here. But I ask you to recognize the God of Psalm 139, the God of the Bible. Recognize him by calling him Lord and giving your life to him. But beware, it does mean changing something. It does mean changing what you love, what you hate, and what you want. For both Christian and non-Christian alike, I call you to behold your God and to live accordingly.